There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've probably heard of Suleiman, but... Perhaps your knowledge about him doesn't stretch much beyond his Western nickname, the Magnificent. He was a contemporary of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, the French King Francois I and the English monarch Henry VIII, though the latter, poor and preoccupied with matters of the bedroom, did not concern him a jot. Suleiman was Sultan of the Ottoman Empire from 1520 until his death in 1566. He led his armies to war in Belgrade, Rhodes, Budapest, even Vienna, later conquered much of the Middle East and North Africa. His reign marked the zenith of Ottoman power, and his reforms reshaped Turkish law and society. In Turkey, he's still known as Kununi, the lawgiver. My guest today has just published an acclaimed, gripping and present tense account of Suleiman's early reign which draws on extensive primary sources in half a dozen languages. It's called The Lion House, The Coming of a King, and its author is Christopher de Belague, award-winning writer of five books. Christopher, thank you so much for making time to talk about your new book with me. You start your book, though, in what might at first glance appear to be a curious place with a Venetian election and then tell the story of Suleiman the Magnificent in part at least through this kind of prism of the relationship between the Ottomans and Venice. What inspired you to put Venice at the heart of the Ottoman story? It was where I happened to start the story when I was simply researching and putting down notes. I set out to write a book that would put flesh on the bones of this idea of the Ottomans as an empire extending in many different directions, but also one that had fluctuating alliances and enmities, the most important of which at this time was with the Republic of Venice. Partly because I think that's slightly surprising to a lot of people who regard the opposition of Christendom and Islam or the Ottomans and Europe as somehow set in stone. And also partly because I found the dynamics of that relationship, which is a relationship of the immensely powerful and the much less powerful, to be very interesting. The Venetians had to use all of their wiles and all of their skill. Venice is twice the size of Central Park, and you've got the Ottoman Empire, which is the greatest slab of territory that's ever been seen, or one of them. And the Venetians are entirely dependent on Ottoman largesse in order to send their ships hither and thither to make themselves lots of money. So this position of inferiority from a geopolitical and economic standpoint becomes a spur to all sorts of inventiveness, deceitfulness, wiles, 
cleverness, things to admire, things to deplore. And the, the first scene of the book is simply the arrival of an envoy, or rather an envoy's report, of some of the more ominous characteristics of this new sultan that no one really knows anything about because he's young and untested and came out of nowhere, came from the provinces, when his father died from the plague and became sultan. And the Venetians, more than anyone, is absolutely desperate to know who this man is and what he's like. And the answer is, he's possibly very dangerous. And I suppose one reason why they didn't know that much about him before this point was that there was, as you say in your book, no particular reason to expect that Suleiman would become the sultan. So could you trace for us his journey to the throne and also actually just to sort of fill us in on the sort of nature of the empire he inherited? Well, the empire had been more than doubled under his father, Selim I, who was a great warrior and he basically looked east and so he looked to Iran and he looked around the eastern rim of the Mediterranean basin and then down as far as Egypt. And then, of course, when he got to Egypt, the keys to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina fell into his hands. And so within a very short time, Selim had really established the Ottoman Empire as one of the great world empires and certainly a rival to the Habsburgs. That was the empire that he inherited. The reason that he inherited it and not someone else, we're not entirely sure, but we do know that Suleiman had plenty of sisters and no advertised brothers, which suggests either that he didn't have any brothers or he had brothers and they were bumped off. The nature of the Ottoman succession was very precarious. It was very violent. The dynastic succession, there is really no kind of solution to it, as the Tudors discovered, as all kinds of European dynasties discovered. The Ottoman solution was to legislate and put into law the idea of fratricide that would enable the stronger or the strongest and the most deserving of any sultan's sons to come to the throne and to be rid and free of any sibling who might try and depose him. Now, Suleiman didn't have that because, as I mentioned, he didn't have any living brothers. So his path to the throne was very smooth. And that is one of the reasons why the Europeans didn't know anything about him, because they didn't have stories of his daring do and his audacity and his bravery in the field, or indeed his treacherous or gentlemanly or any other kind of characteristic from which to draw. So he was simply unknown. And I suppose because his father had been on the throne for a short period of time, and he himself had been one of many brothers, trying to predict the future of where the crown was going to go was somewhat difficult from afar. Yes, it's a kind of late Renaissance version of Kremlinology. Who is there? Who is genuinely powerful? And how do we know? And when the Sultan had plenty of children, plenty of sons, then they were all sent off to different corners of the empire to serve their apprenticeship as provincial governors. And they went with mothers who also had a big stake in their sons becoming Sultan, because if you didn't become Sultan, you were essentially dead. And this was something that I don't deal with in the Lion House, but which will come in to later books that continue the story. But this is something that Suleiman did not suffer from. Now, Suleiman's father, it's worth saying, seems to have been exceptionally vicious, even towards his son. What do we know of their relationship? We get snippets of their relationship. We know that Suleiman, when Selim, his father, was governor of Trabzon, or Trebizond, as 20th century Europeans knew it, Suleiman was living there with his mother, 
And so he would have seen a great deal of his father. But his father was also very busy. He was busy pacifying the empire's eastern frontiers and also waging an Islamic version of the confessional wars that would become extremely well known in Europe. The terms Shia and Sunni had not really been consolidated in the way that they were subsequently. But the outlines of two distinct definitions and rival definitions of Islam were coming into play at that time. And the Sunnis and Selim and the Ottoman Empire were the established version of Islam, was the Sunni version of Islam. They regarded the Shias and particularly Shiism emanating from the neighbouring state of Iran, not only as a heresy that needed to be stamped out, but also as a threat to the territory of the empire because the Shias sent across missionaries who operated undercover and were trying to convert large numbers of people in Anatolia. So that was the first kind of exposure that Suleiman had to his father. Then when Suleiman was 17, he was appointed by his grandfather, Sultan Bayezid, to be the governor of Kaffa, which is now in the, what we call the Crimea. And it was from Kaffa that Selim, Suleiman's father, launched his bid for the throne. And that involved deposing his father, Bayezid, it also killing two of his brothers and five of his nephews. Suleiman was certainly exposed to all of the brutality and all of the ruthlessness that Selim would be known for. We know that he met his father after his father came to the throne and when Suleiman was governor of Manisa in one of the western provinces of Turkey. And we also have reports from two sources that his father sent him a poisoned gown that was then tried on. Suleiman's mother was canny enough to say, I don't think you should try that on, darling. We'll give it to an attendant to try on. And so the attendant dropped dead and it was determined that had been steeped in poison. Why Selim would have done that? He was an extremely suspicious man. He may have suspected his son of harbouring premature ambitions on the throne. We simply don't know. But that was something that was chronicled at the time. So he may have suspected that his son was like him in character, in other words. Was he? I think so. And one of the interesting things about Suleiman is that we can find in the course of his career distinct moments where he distinguishes himself from his father, despite the fact that he had a very proper, outwardly highly respectful view of his father. There are times when he certainly distinguished himself from him. And one of the ways that we notice that is that his attitude towards power was less bloodthirsty. What is the nature of the Sultan's power at this time? Is it a sort of full-on absolute monarchy? The Sultan's power derives from God. To oppose the will of the Sultan is to oppose the will of God. The Sultan could not be gainsaid. He could not be contradicted. He also relied for his legitimacy on the apparatus of Sunni Islam as had been established within the Ottoman Empire. So were he to behave in a way that displeased the senior doctors of the law or the Sheikh al-Islam, who was the senior cleric of the empire, then that could conceivably have caused him problems. So, for example, when you set out on an expedition, particularly against... It's a very thorny thing to attack another Muslim country. So you do need the legitimation of the senior clerics. And so when Selim set out against the Shias, he did so armed, as it were, with several very powerful fatwas from the senior doctors of the law. And his son certainly did the same. To take arms against another Muslim country was very dicey. So you had to establish that this was not a proper Muslim country, that it was a heretical offshoot of Islam that was extremely damaging to the true prosecution of the faith. But there are moments in the Lion House and there are moments in Suleiman's early career 
where the nature of that power, which on the face of it is absolute, is extremely compromised in the classic sort of courtly fashion by those around the Sultan. And the question arises, is the Sultan a plaything? Is he a puppet? Or is he in fact all powerful? And that is really one of the central questions of the book. Yes. Okay. So this takes us to a man who at one point calls himself the lion tamer, the Frank, also known as Abraham, the slave termed favourite, to whom Suleiman seems to have been inordinately attached. Could you introduce him to us? Suleiman and Ibrahim were the same age. Ibrahim was a slave who abducted, we think, simply while going about his business as a young eight or nine year old on a beach in Albania. And one of the things that I love about this story in this period and indeed history in general, is the way that fortunes can be made and unmade in such an arbitrary and extraordinarily weird way. So here you have someone whose father was a seller of animal skins, a Greek speaker, a citizen of the Republic of Venice, living in what we now call Albania, who within a few years has been educated to a very high degree, has been introduced to the then crown prince's inner circle, become the crown prince's intimate friend, perhaps even lover, and then is brought to Istanbul when his young friend is catapulted to the throne. And the senior pushers, the court officials, the ministers, the viziers, look at Suleiman, and then they look at the other chap and they think, who is this guy? We've never heard of him, we don't know who he is. And within three years, Suleiman has made him grand vizier. And that's not a small deal. The Grand Vizier is certainly under Suleiman, the equivalent or almost the equivalent of the Sultan in power and authority. And there are times when Suleiman makes that very explicit by issuing ordinances and decrees under which Ibrahim is to be obeyed. That's not something that is readily comprehensible to the European monarchies at the time. And there's something so clever, I suppose, about having someone as your right-hand man, who has been entirely elevated by you, who has no other power base on which to draw, you know, isn't from a noble family or anything that could mean that he's in any way a threat. It absolutely hangs on the favour of the Sultan. And actually, this reminds me of the Janissaries, the elite Turkish standing army that you introduced so vividly in the book. They have a similar strength, I suppose, for as far as the Sultan's concerned, don't they? This is all born out of bitter experience. The Ottomans have experimented with lots of different ways of having courtiers and drawn from regional magnates. That proved to be a problem. They got too big for their boots. Also the question of marriage and who was going to be the mothers of their children. If that was other local or regional or even world sovereigns' daughters, then that created problems because there could be a move on the Ottoman throne. And then the idea of the Janissaries being from the Devshirmer, the levy that was levied mostly from the Balkan provinces, anywhere that was captured by the Ottomans, they were liable to have to hand over a substantial proportion of the flower of their male youth. And you have lots of examples of Janissaries who rose to exceptionally high positions in the empire. They were utterly beholden to the Sultan. Their loyalty was supposed to be unimpeachable. And when it worked, the Janissary system, it worked extremely well. They were driven by a desire for conquest. They had the zeal of converts. And I suppose on a psychological level, it was politic for them as individuals to forget the appalling circumstances of their enslavement and being wrenched away from their families. In the case of Ibrahim, it's a little bit different. He was purchased. He wasn't enslaved by the Ottoman machine. 
He entered the Ottoman machine almost by accident, as it were, or in the sideways fashion. And so his elevation wasn't even part of that structure. And suddenly he was sharing the intimate spaces of the Sultan's life. He was the only non-eunuch male who was permitted into the Sultan's innermost chambers. The Sultan would present him with clothes of a splendour that he received himself. He was able to build himself an extraordinary palace, which survives today on the Hippodrome of Istanbul. His slaves were well known for the fashionable Moorish way of cutting their hair, for their gold tassels. Everything about him was utterly splendid. But, as you say, none of it was his. And all of that could be taken away at a moment's notice because his legal status never changed. He was always a slave, despite being the richest man in the Ottoman Empire. It's a wonderful paradox. I'm really struck by what you said about the fact that the Janissaries might well have wanted to kind of put the memory of their captivity behind them. It reminds me of this book I read a few years ago called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which is about cognitive dissonance. And it talks about the fact that if you're a member of a club that has involved some painful initiation rights, your value being a member of that club more than if there hadn't been those sort of high fees to join or horrible initiation rights to go through. And I suppose in some ways, that's what we see writ large with the Janissaries. I think so. And we see it writ even larger in the institution of the harem. So if I can, I'll use that as a way to introduce one of the other leading characters in the book, who again is a slave. And that is Hurem, who becomes the Sultan's chief consort and then later his wife. And she is from what we now considered to be Ukraine. She was abducted by one of the slaving expeditions that set off from the Crimea. She was dispatched across the Black Sea from the Crimea, having been purchased and probably passed on to other hands. There's something about her that attracted buyers on behalf of the Sultan. We think that may have been Ibrahim himself. There are accounts to suggest that Ibrahim himself picked out Hurem for his master. And then you enter an entirely different world. It's like the Janissaries, but with walls that just look in. You have the finest fittings, the finest facilities, and you're being given an extraordinary education in the Turkish language, in Arabic, in needlework, in various other accomplishments that are considered necessary to the woman of the harem. And then you're surrounded by other girls and women who have also been through something very similar. These women come from Africa, they come from as far north as Poland, they come from all around the world. The one thing that they have in common is that they have been abducted, sold, and they are now at the Sultan's pleasure. And a small minority of them will be summoned to the new palace, the old palace being where the women of the harem live, and they will spend the night with the Sultan. And it could be one night, or it could be several nights. It could be until they get pregnant, and if they have a male child, then that is that, they are no longer welcome in the Sultan's bed, except, and this is another exceptional feature of the particular story that I'm told, except that Hurem is someone whom the Sultan wants to see more of. And he does. And so she becomes not only his chief consort, but ultimately she becomes his only consort. And we have the extraordinary phenomenon of sultanic fidelity or monogamy and she ends up marrying the sultan which is virtually unheard of she ends up moving into the new palace again unheard of 
And in the latter stages of the Sultan's career, in the middle stages, she exerts a lot of power and she exercises power that extends far beyond the kind of domestic arrangements that are immediately close to her. And the other paradox is that no one knows what she looks like. And she's painted across Europe. She's famed. She's well-known. People are absolutely thirsty for gossip about her. What does she look like? Who knows? The eunuchs know. The other women in the harem know. Who's actually telling? How much of it is information? How much of it is misinformation? She's the most extraordinary and wonderful character. And I love the evidence of her letters to Suleiman and his response to her. I mean, these extraordinary love letters, Henry VIII's letters to Abilene have nothing on them. <laughs> I'm very lucky because a Turkish historian in the 60s went in and trawled through the Ottoman archive, which is absolutely impossible, vast. Only parts of it have actually been penetrated, let alone organised. And he transliterated the Ottoman letters into modern Turkish script and he presented them in a kind of critical edition with the Ottoman next to the modern Turkish and that's a brilliant way of just grasping at the personality of Hurem and also the personality of the Sultan and what I understand is that some of the letters were written as she was learning Turkish as she was learning the courtly ways and betray a lot of the kind of classic tropes and cliches of courtly love letters at the time. And then suddenly in another letter, you'll find that mistakes are made in the Turkish and that this is genuinely her. And there's an outpouring of love or of frustration or of sadness or a genuine emotion is being shown. And I think she shows that in the love that she feels for the Sultan, and he's away for a year, two years at a time, she must feel very exposed when he's away. The harem is not a forgiving place. And everyone, as you pointed out earlier, is essentially alone in the harem. Then there's also the love that she feels towards the children that she's had to the sultan. One of them in particular has health problems and he causes her worry. And so she mentions that also. And she mentions other bits and pieces about life in Istanbul at the time that just bring a very immediate sense of what is going through her mind. And it's wonderful to have those to use. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So one of the reasons the Sultan is away is military exploits. So we need to talk about war. In the early days, Christian Europe is surprised by this new Sultan coming in and the attack on Belgrade, 1521, and Buda, 1526. But that one's an odd one, actually, isn't it? Because it seems to be, to an extent, about show. He devastates the city, but fails to hold on to it. I found that so curious that he didn't secure his position through occupation. Did it matter that he didn't? I think it went on to matter a great deal. Hungary had not been properly penetrated. He would spend most of his career as sultan competing for Hungary, either in order to get control of it, or to use it as a buffer zone, or to prevent the Habsburgs from getting control of it. And towards the beginning of the 1530s, you understand very clearly that the extent of Ottoman ambition has been reached. They've reached Vienna. They've almost reached Vienna on another occasion. They can't go any further because the logistics just simply won't allow it. If you set out from Istanbul in May then you're going to get to Vienna at the earliest in September and then you either need to take Vienna or you need to come back because winter's arriving. It's a long way from Istanbul to Vienna and there's a lot of weather and there's a lot of enemy in between. And also behind Vienna, there's the entirety of the German states. And the German states, whatever their feelings about the Reformation, and let's not forget that Suleiman is extremely adept at exploiting the rifts that appear in Christendom because of the Reformation. But whatever they feel their respective positions towards that, they unite in their opposition to the Turks. And they are perhaps willing to see Hungary as a buffer zone, but they're not willing to lose Vienna or anything north of that. And ultimately, they can command greater forces than Suleiman can when he gets there. And so Hungary becomes a kind of buffer zone an area in between that is sometimes partly part of the empire, sometimes partly not. There are important kind of interests there. When you build a mosque, it's quite difficult to pull back from that territory as Ottoman sultan at the peak of your power. 
it is essentially saying that we have this bit of territory into the land of Islam and now we're voluntarily giving it up. You can't really do that. So you're obliged to find a workaround. Also, there is a lot of mines. There's a lot of economic activity and riches that the Ottomans are interested in and the Habsburgs also. And Hungary becomes this kind of liminal zone but for the entirety of his reign and for much longer afterwards. And if he had held on to it, you know, secured Buda, secured Hungary, then those problems with logistics and Vienna change, don't they? Because you've got a supply line that is much nearer and you've got men who can overwinter nearer and all those sort of things. So it seems like a big misstep. You can, but if you look at the geography, then you realise the other reason why he has to get back in time for winter, and that is that the Iranians are on the other side. If you stay away from home for too long, then the Iranians are going to enter Anatolia from your back door. Who knows what mischief could be made in Egypt or in other parts. The empire is awkwardly positioned. It straddles two entirely different worlds. There is a vast number of kilometres between the two. And the Sultan cannot delegate to the extent that he would perhaps like to. He has to be there. And you can see that when expeditionary forces set out and the Sultan is nowhere near, then they perform less well because the Sultan is their talisman. His presence is absolutely essential for the Janissaries to A, behave themselves, B, fight like lions. He's a galvanising presence and he needs to be there. And I suppose one other theatre potentially is the Mediterranean. And in this, he has a relationship with the dread pirate Haradin, often known as Barbarossa. What's the relationship there with Suleiman? Barbarossa was born a Turkish subject. He was born a Muslim, and that makes him quite rare among the leading characters in The Lion House. He becomes a pirate. Piracy is a pretty established profession. And he ends up with his brothers, establishing himself in the western Mediterranean, the eastern Mediterranean essentially being under Ottoman control. The western Mediterranean has very rich pickings. You've got not only the tremendously varied and extremely helpful coastline of North Africa where you can put in and hide away. You've also got the Iberian coast and the Balearic Islands. You've got the western coast of Italy. You've got Malta and Sicily. The riches from which you can pick up slaves and booty are fantastic. There are a lot of pirates competing for this extremely lucrative stretch of water. But Hyredin is the best and he gathers others around him. And eventually, Ibrahim Pasha says to Suleiman, look, we've hit a brick wall at Vienna. The theatre where we need to establish complete control, and which isn't in our control, is the Mediterranean. And we're not actually that good at producing ships or sailors. So let's employ a man who can do both. And his name is Hayreddin. He's already a Muslim. He's Turkish. He's one of us. Let's make him chief admiral. And that's what Suleiman does. And Barbarossa becomes Captain Pasha, or the head of the navy. And he's a great organiser. And he sets himself up at the shipyard in Istanbul. And he terrorises his workmen. And they produce a fleet extraordinarily quickly. And then he sets out and he does battle against Charles V and Charles V's great admiral, Doria. And also Barbarossa brings the French in and that's the moment where the Venetians recede into the background in terms of their alliance with the Ottomans and are replaced by the French, who are probably a little bit more reliable. 
We should talk about one final character of the sort of central cast of your book, who is Venetian, at least in birth, the illegitimate son of the Venetian dojo. Is he the third man of the empire? He's the third man of the empire, very much unofficially. He never converts. He can't rise in the patriciate in Venice because of his illegitimate birth. He goes to Istanbul, as many Venetians do, and he becomes a man about town who's dabbling in all forms of commerce and business and trade, has a strong interest in politics. And then one day he hears that his father's been elected doge, and that changes his fortunes overnight because the Ottomans realise that to have the son of the doge living in Istanbul is almost as good as having the doge himself. And Alviz Agriti, as he is very close to his father, Andrei Agriti, despite having not seen each other for many years, they correspond extensively. They have a great correspondence about the ways of politics and economics and the world, and they're tremendous allies. So Alviza establishes himself as this absolutely vital middleman between the Venetians and the Ottomans, and he smooths out wrinkles in the relationship. He advances his father's agenda, which is to get the Ottomans to attack Hungary and strike deep into the Habsburg heartlands, because he, Andred Gritti, is very fearful that the Habsburgs will come after Venice and he wants to have them diverted from that path. And in the process, Alviza Gritti becomes fabulously wealthy. He supplies grain to Venice, he supplies tin to the Ottoman Empire, he supplies gemstones and anything of bling value to the Sultan and to Ibrahim Pasha. When there's a diplomatic problem, he's called in to solve it. He supplies thoroughbred horses to the Italian city-states. He's literally everywhere. One of the most interesting things that he does is that Ibrahim decides that his master, the Sultan, needs a crown because all the European monarchs have crowns and why don't we have a crown? And Charles V He's got two crowns, and the Pope's got a tiara with three layers, and we don't have anything of that kind. So Ibrahim says to Gritti, you're well connected in this world, why don't we set up a crown to beat all crowns? And the crown is so big, it's assembled in Venice to designs that certainly Alviza Gritti had a hand in formulating. It costs roughly the equivalent of, I think I'm right in saying, the entire budget of Egypt. It is an extraordinarily valuable thing and it's all for show and for theatre. And it comes south from Venice, it comes down the Adriatic and then it crosses the Balkans and it is received by the Sultan on his way north on one of his campaigns and it is paraded through various towns on his way north through the Balkans and into Hungary. And we have simply wonderful accounts of these parades, the entire Ottoman army coming through the town of Niche with this extraordinary helmet, so big that no man could ever wear it, it would break his neck. And this sultan who has been so removed from the general experience of ordinary people, so remote, so splendid, so wonderful, and yet completely divorced from any sense of fallibility or humanity, it's really the apogee of the public relations exercise that develops around Suleiman in this period in his career. Yes, that made such a vivid impression on me when I was reading it. Gemstones the size of fruit. Sounded incredible. You talked then about the accounts of the processions. We've talked a bit about letters. And the book clearly draws on a really rich range of primary sources in, I think, six languages. Could you tell us a little bit more about the sort of sources that were available for you to draw on? My book is a kind of lockdown baby, and lockdown had an effect on the book. My experience, and I'm sure the experience of most other 
people writing history books is to fight against the solitary nature of writing. And that essentially means talking to other people all the time, going out, having coffees, discussing what you're writing, seeing what they think, getting ideas. You always come away with an idea of a book to read or a new thought that's been planted in your head. You're constantly cross-referencing with different areas of the world and subsequent timeframes in history. And so you end up with a very broad kind of canvas, but also quite deep because you can leap forward and you have the kind of advantage of looking back from a position of superior knowledge when someone makes a mistake and you point that out. When a misapprehension takes place, the irony is you bring these out and you get a sort of classically written history book. I didn't have that option. I didn't have a lot of the kind of secondary material written by other historians that I would have gone to to check theories or think about the right way of seeing this period. I simply had gathered in a kind of panic when it was clear that lockdown was happening, all of this primary stuff. And to my delight, I found that much of it was available online. The entirety of the diaries of Marina Sanuto, who makes peeps look like a kind of part-timer. He's available online. There was a reference to something to do with a helmet that I really wanted to find. It was a three-page letter written by a Venetian. And I was cursing myself for literally a year, thinking, God, if only I could get hold of this. It was somewhere in Padua, in a library somewhere. And one day I just Googled it, and there it came up. <laughs> and it was just extraordinary. <laughs> It had been photographed and put online. So I found all of this stuff and then the Turkish chronicles that were written at the time, a couple of Persian accounts of the campaigns into Iran, all the Habsburg embassies, they all left behind voluminous correspondences, voluminous accounts, reports. And so what happened was that I read these primary sources fully intending to then turn the book into a much more conventional book, but found myself writing something quite different. Something where I, as the historian, was essentially written out. There's no figure of authority telling you the way that you should think about these events or reminding you of what would happen later on or saying this would be a very fateful day or saying Suleiman would regret this or any of the kind of usual tropes that you associate with the fully rounded 360 degree history book. It was just something that came out much more immediate and it lent itself to the present tense and it lent itself to a narrator who's almost not there. Yes, it's really interesting. I hadn't recognised that that sort of lack of foreshadowing was part of it, but I had, of course, noticed the historic present and the verbatim conversations. And one reader review that I read online said that they read the whole book before they realised it wasn't a novel. <laughs> Let's finish, because you said early on that you are working on more about Suleiman. The book finishes in 1536. We're not going to give away the endings, but you're going on, are you, to tell the remaining 30 years of his reign? I'm going on to tell what roughly corresponds to the second third of his reign and whether that will exhaust me, my publisher and my readers, or whether there will be an appetite on all sides for a third volume, I don't know. But when I've gathered my strength, then I'm going to plunge into the second third of Suleiman's reign, which introduces a whole new set of characters. Some of the ones we've spoken about are no longer on the scene. Others become yet more powerful. And Suleiman himself becomes a much more clearly delineated character because not only is he a father and a general, he is also a lawgiver. He standardises the Ottoman legal code in a way that's never been done before. He is also 
an immense builder. And so Mimar Sinan, the great Ottoman architect, comes to prominence in this period. And then towards the end of this central third of his reign, we get the ominous stirrings of the succession, which will dog and bedevil the final third of his reign because he simply produced too many male children. He wasn't ruthless enough to kill all but one of them. And there are terrible things coming down the line. And is it later that he gets that famous sobriquet of the Magnificent? Yes, the Magnificent is something that no Ottoman citizen at the time would have recognised. It was attached to him after his death by the Europeans. But it's not a bad sobriquet to have. I think I'd probably settle for it. Well, talking of magnificent things, The Lion House is out now and you can pick up a rather beautiful copy of it and I do encourage you to do so, The Lion House being the Ottoman court. But Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.